This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, you did just tell us your super secret civilian name, so... What's your superhero identity? Well, since we are going to be talking about a Spider-Man movie this week, I figured that another portmanteau superhero name was called for, so you could just call me the curmudgeon. <laughs> With a hyphen, my superpower is complaining. And that, that works. I think that works. I'm very curious to know uh, what's your superhero name. Don't tell anybody else, but I am the optimist because hope springs eternal when it comes to seeing new movies. Well, we've got a real odd couple dynamic going in this superhero team up. <laughs> Listeners, we are going to be talking about the newest Spider-Man movie to hit theaters this weekend. It is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And to pair with that, Kevin has chosen a 1987 sort of maybe superhero movie that would be Paul Verhoeven's Robocop. We'll see if I exercise my great power responsibly with that watch list conversation, but there's a whole lot else coming up on this episode, episode 384 of Seeing and Believing. I can hear you being quiet, Mom. I, um, hope I didn't ice your game, man. No one my age says those words in that order. It's just hard to see my little man not being my little boy all the time. Yeah. For years I've been taking care of this little boy. Making sure he is loved. That he feels like he belongs wherever he wants to be. He wants to go out into the world and do great big things. Not bad, kid. And what I worry about most... I love you, Miles. ...is they won't look out for you like us. Miles! Want to get out of here? Wherever you go from here, you have to promise to take care of that little boy for me. Make sure he never forgets where he came from. And he never doubts that he is loved. And he never lets anyone tell him that he doesn't belong there. You gotta promise, Miles. I promise. Yes, we're here on episode 384 of Seeing and Believing, and we're going big on on this episode. Mm -hmm. And I am here for it, as as the kids say. It's going to be a good one. It's the summer movie season. I am here with my popcorn. I am here ready to be dazzled by whatever comes on screen. Yeah, for some people, the, the big summer blockbuster season may have started with Guardians of the Galaxy at the beginning of May. But for me, the big event movie that was going to kick off summer for me personally mm -hmm. was the movie we're going to be talking about here in this first segment. I'm really looking forward to discussing it. It is, of course, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which we are pairing with a less family-friendly movie called RoboCop <laughs> in the Watchlist segment. So very interested to know how that's going to go. Yeah, me too. I'm very curious to know what your galaxy-brained connection is between two of these two movies as well, but I guess we'll get there when we get there. I, I've I've got those locked and loaded in the chamber. We'll we'll get the get to those when we can. But for now, let's turn our attention to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Um, this is, of course, the sequel to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which was kind of a bolt from the blue for a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, just in terms of what it did with the medium of animation and also kind of what it did with the Spider-Man mythology uh, in a landscape where 
superhero movies tend to play it safe um, with the way they treat their characters into the Spider-Verse really took some risks and colored outside the lines, kind of literally, mm-hmm. if you if you think about it. So Across the Spider-Verse definitely had its work cut out for it. This is the film's official synopsis, because I want to make sure to get it exactly right. After reuniting with Gwen Stacy, Brooklyn's full-time friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, alter ego in this case, Miles Morales, is catapulted across the multiverse where he encounters a team of Spider-People charged with protecting its very existence. But when the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, Miles finds himself pitted against the other Spiders and must redefine what it means to be a hero so he can save the people he loves most. Sarah... Like, I, I've already kind of sung the praises of Into the Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's any secret that you're a big fan of oh, Into yeah. the Spider-Verse as well. Yeah, it was one of my favorite movies of that year. And I wasn't expecting to love it as nearly as much as I did. So Across the Spider-Verse has some pretty big shoes to fill, I think. Yeah. Um. So the sequel is even maybe more ambitious and brimming with ideas than that film was. So like you said, big shoes to fill. My question for you is, does it manage to be a worthy successor to that film for you? Or are we now living in the dimension where Spider-Man sequels are no longer any good? Oh, man, that's such a great question because I'm so happy to say this really worked for me. And I think the tricky part about any sequel is that you you want to have a little bit more of what made that first thing good, but you also want to, you know, color outside the lines. Like you mentioned that Into the Spider-Verse manages to do so well. And it's a very tricky balancing act to be able to bring people back the characters that they know and love, and then also not feel like you're rehashing the same story over and over and over again. And that's a double challenge when you're talking about Spider-Man, which has had four, by my count, reboots since 2001. (laughs) So it's a very difficult task. And I'm happy to say that um, this movie manages to pass that test, I think, with flying colors. And I really do mean flying colors because this Mm -hmm. is a very colorful, very kinetic film. And it brings a lot of the same verve and life that its predecessor does to the screen. And it does it a little bit more so without making it too overwhelming, but it comes really close up to that edge. So I'm curious to know, did you find this movie overwhelming, satisfying, disappointing? Like, where are you on the spectrum of spider Spider's man? <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's over, it is overwhelming, but I think in a good way, there's just this, um, prologue sequence that we get with Gwen Stacy. The movie begins with her. Mm-hmm. And um the the way that the gauntlet is just thrown with that opening sequence before we even get to see the either Miles Miles himself or the title credits at all mm-hmm. is really what kind of let me know that I was in for something that was just if it wasn't going to be great, it was at least going to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And it carries through on that promise, I think. the the I mean, the big attraction of the Spider-Verse movies has been the visual style. Just the way that it goes bold, um, where a lot of, uh, at least American animated films, really uh, play it safe. Like, they, they go for something that's either more realistic or more self-consciously cartoony. Um, very um, grokkable uh, <laughs> uh, visual design. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse kind of try to make it, make the screen look like a comic book page, even down to like the screen printing textures and everything. And the way that they take that style from the first film and adapt it so that we even get uh, slight variations on that style, depending on which spider ver- spider dimension, I guess, mm-hmm. we are in at any given time, I think is really something special. I love how, you know, uh, Gwen's dimension is very watercolor inflected. There's an interlude in a version of New York that is very uh, Mumbai in, uh, flavored mm-hmm. that is uh, in a different style. There's a punk rock character who kind of looks like the you know the uh zines of the 80s and 90s like it's really fun to see what new uh visual twist the film is going to come up with before you even get into the actual narrative beats and i think 
me, that's what I like best about this movie is that it kind of takes animation and it makes it, it doesn't make it abstract or impressionistic, but it does come right up to that line where the, the way that the film works with texture and sensation Mm -hmm. is almost the point more so than, uh, adhering to strict, uh, reality mm-hmm. and it's very appropriate for both kind of like the overall plot of the film and also just it's really interesting to watch at any given moment and i like that a lot yeah there's a lot of joy i think bursting off like basically every frame of this movie even the heavier emotional beats i think um are really focused on getting across how those characters are feeling in a way that really uses every piece of the filmmaker's toolkit a lot of good framing here a lot of great use of colors one of my favorite things about the scenes where we're seeing everything through Gwen's eyes is that the use of colors gives you a really good sense of how she's feeling and what she's feeling without feeling the need to be too closely married to like a, a very um consistent style or consistent background like it really does feel like a comic book especially because there's a lot of loose freedom there with the colors that are being used so when Gwen is having a very difficult conversation the colors start off in kind of this soft pink that is sort of the default background in her version of earth and as that conversation gets more and more difficult the colors get a little bit more jewel toned and a little bit harsher there's a lot more contrast going on um as she's fighting her own emotions and as she's also having this fight with this person that she loves as well and that love for this character i think shows through in the filmmaking i think that respect for that character's emotional landscape and just how complicated it is also shows through in the filmmaking. And then that is extended to every single side character that we run across, even if they're on the screen for maybe like half a second. We get a lot of different variations on the Spider's Men, and they feel unique and distinct largely because they kind of each have their own thing that they do, and that's the thing that makes them unique. Even though they're all Spider-Man, there's still something about them that separates them out from all of the other Spider-Men. And the movie is willing to go there in kind of pushing the bounds of maybe even like a coherent visual style. And I think that's what makes this movie work so well is that its coherence is in that willingness to go there and to push the bounds of style and to show us like slightly different expressions of what each of these different multiversal like versions of Earth are. And I love that. It just feels so much more creative than, I don't know, slapping a slightly different color grade filter on a different dimension and just calling it a day. It's really visually sophisticated, which it didn't, it wouldn't have to be. I mean, just the fact that, you know, it is a superhero movie. It is, you know, uh, uh, it, it's got this, the way that it approaches uh, humor is, is very like, it's very much approachable i guess in in that sense it's even if you aren't a huge fan of spider-man as a character you can have a lot of fun just sort of like getting the little gags in the corners of the frame um the the little jokes and line deliveries that we get are very funny and so it goes down easy but the fact that the film was willing to take that and then take a big risk with a lot of the compositions within the frame mm-hmm. is is not something that we should be taking for granted here i think mm-hmm. there the way we it uses split screens to mimic comic book frames the the way that color changes not based on like actual you know um diegetic lighting but just on emotional states of the characters i really like that and it's so refreshing to see a film this big um that's really you know aiming for a really big audience still prioritize such artfulness in and, and uh such artfulness and boldness in in the way that it just constructs its visual language mm-hmm. yeah and it's bold where it needs to be it's definitely big and loud in every single place that it needs to be. I love just how much of the frame these characters take up, especially when they're 
fighting each other or fighting a supervillain. But I think the boldest step that this movie takes is it gives us a lot of quiet time with these characters, too. It's not just all fights and action and jokes, although there are plenty of those as well. And this is a movie that feels like it really captures the spirit of Spider-Man because Spider-Man is very quippy, always has been ever since the character was first introduced in the comics. Um, But he's also a character who's got a lot of emotional depth. And I appreciate that this movie takes time out of its day to give us those quieter character beats where two characters can just sit down and have a conversation with each other. We get the sense that Miles Morales loves both of his parents very much, and also that neither he nor his parents fully get each other, which I feel like is true for most 15-year-olds probably. But it's not just because we're being told, oh, because he's 15, he and his parents don't get along. We actually get some really good lived-in examples of how and why those relationships are kind of breaking down in a way that doesn't feel like it's preachy or that doesn't feel like it's treading, you know, the same territory that every other teen drama might want to tread. It actually gives us some time in Miles's head and in his bedroom and in conversation with his parents where they're not just fighting with each other just to fight with each other or they're not having a conversation with each other just to pass along plot important information, a lot of it is character building. And it's the kind of character building that makes me appreciate just how quiet and how, I don't know, like, well thought out Miles's character arc is specifically. This is a character that actually grows and changes over the course of the movie's runtime. And I'm pretty sure in our Guardians of the Galaxy review a couple of weeks ago, I complained about this being a thing with a lot of superhero movies where characters don't always change within the bounds of an MCU movie. You get a lot of that character development as just kind of an uninformed trait for something that happened off screen. And here we get the state of being from each of these characters as they're introduced or reintroduced at the beginning of the movie. You get a sense that they each have something that they want. They each have something that they need. Those things may not necessarily be simpatico with each other or with the other characters around them's wants and needs, and they have to figure that out. And by the end of the movie, there's some form of a character arc where you feel the growth and you feel the development, and maybe not everybody is always going to get precisely what they want or they need, but it's still a satisfying arc that felt like I could see these characters moving even when they were just sitting next to each other having a conversation. I think it's really telling that the, you know, there's a lot going on in this film. And and if I have a quibble with it, it might be that there's maybe just a little too much going on Mm -hmm. in it. Without spoiling too much, it ends on a to-be-continued note. Mm -hmm. And... I was a little bit frustrated with that because (laughs) partly because I was enjoying my time with this movie and I I wanted to have the emotional journeys that these various characters have gone on. I wanted to see them resolved within the movie in which they were introduced. Mm -hmm. So to uh, have that kind of pushed off to a follow-up movie was frustrating to me. But I think that 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 is a good problem to have in a way that the characters are thoughtfully written enough that I do have that sense that I don't want to see the next movie because oh, I want to see like how the plot is going to resolve. I want to see the next movie because I want these uh, these character arcs and these emotional beats to be tied off mm-hmm. and, and wrapped up. I I enjoy I enjoyed that a lot, and I think it's also telling that you know there there is a a supervillain in this movie. There are a couple of supervillains. There's kind of a one there there is a supervillain who's kind of the major um driving force of a lot of the plot. Mm-hmm. But the big conflict in terms of what Miles and Gwen really want really want is n- not really based on the supervillain character it's based on stuff within their own lives with their with the loved ones in their lives and also the ways that those rub up and create friction against their sense of duty as heroes Mm -hmm. that's really nice and i think that's something that uh 
that's a reason I like Spider-Man as a character just in general so much is because that that hero has always had that kind of the Uncle Ben sort of with great power comes great responsibility ethos. And it's interesting to see how various movies explore that. And I like how Across the Spider-Verse kind of broadens it so it's not just about one Spider-Man. It's about two uh, a Spider-Man and a Spider-Woman, if you will, mm-hmm. Miles and Gwen, and how they experience that tension in different ways. And yet that's what draws them together and makes them so interesting as a central pair for the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the Spider-Verse movies are really savvy about the idea of genre and about what makes their characters tick. Like there is that driving force of, you know, Uncle Ben and the idea of that great power and great responsibility. And I think that there is also um, a very savvy approach to understanding the things that make Spider-Man who Spider-Man is, and then also the things that separates out each of these individual spiders men from each other, um, the commonalities that they all share with each other and the understanding that they all get from that. Like they've all been there. They've all had that Uncle Ben moment. And then they've also had to deal with the fallout of that. And that kind of makes them into different and interesting characters who also all share the same rough character arc. And I like that the movie is able to kind of tease out those differences and similarities sort of at the same time, while also being at the same time very funny and taking its characters' growth and development and also pain very seriously as well. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky tightrope to walk. And I like that this movie acknowledges the similarities and the differences between each of these iterations of Spider-Man and the things that make each of them unique and different and also united by kind of the same cause and the same drive. And I really appreciate that that variety isn't a crutch and it isn't just the need to completely rehash, you know, the same scene over and over again that you get in basically every other superhero movie origin story remake. Um, we know that story, and this movie knows that we know that story, and so it's going to build on that mm. in new and interesting and surprising ways, purely because it knows that we know that plot, and we don't need it explained to us. We just need to have a reference to it, and then we can go off in you know a completely different direction, and that's okay because we get that character and we get what makes it tick. Or not even so much going off in a completely different direction as it as it simply takes that as as it takes that for granted and then runs with it mm. so it doesn't need to rehash that uh these spider people have an uncle ben moment it just takes for granted that the audience knows that and then it can take that building block and construct an entire edifice out of it this is a movie that's about archetypes and stories and that's uh, maybe the main thread running throughout, you know, the hugely complex cast of characters and and plot is that you know all of these spider people, no matter what their alternate dimension looks like, they all have kind of those same basic building blocks of the Spider-Man myth, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And the film is very interested in kind of poking that a little bit and asking. Uh, what does it mean to to have a story? Like, how does that give shape to a life? Mm. And how does it give meaning to a life? And it also means that the multiverse conceit, which when I come across it in a Marvel movie now, I, I just, it, it's, it's frustrating in, say, Ant-Man... Quantum Mania, because it seems like it's mostly just an excuse to either undo plot beats or kind of just allow the whole edifice of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to flex and sort of accommodate less successful experiments. Hmm. It seems very much like it it's a plot crutch rather than uh, an opportunity for them to really do interesting things with the the characters within the franchise. In Across the Spider-Verse, it kind of, it takes this multiverse conceit as an opportunity to really ask, well, what does it mean to have different versions of a character? What does it mean to tell different stories about the same character 
What does it mean to tell the same stories about the same character? Hmm. And how does that, like, what does that mean? That's not just for us in the audience, but also for the different iterations of these characters. That's super interesting. It's not something I've seen any other uh, comic book movie seem all that interested in. Mm -hmm. And yet it's such a core aspect of comic books that, you know, there are kind of these different branches of the same character and because those branches are separate, they can experiment, but they all tie back to the same source. Mm -hmm. What is like a movie that is actually interested in sort of pinpointing that and going, that's what's interesting about superheroes. That's a franchise I want to watch more of. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why the to be continued moment doesn't bother me all that much because one, it feels very true to the nature of comic books. You know, there's always going to be another issue. There's always going to be another adventure. There's always going to be something else, you know, a month or whenever, like the next issue comes out at your local comic book store. Um, but there's also um, just kind of that strength in the variety and finding kind of the the universal in the specific as well. Um, and I think that's something that Marvel does in interesting ways just as Marvel comics in general because they're interested in very like flawed characters you know dc comics tends to be much more like godlike archetypes you have your superman you have your batman you have these characters who are kind of up on a pillar and sort of untouchable and characters like spider-man for example um they're all deeply flawed and they're still trying their best and i think the thing that really gets me about this specific iteration of Spider-Man is that Miles Morales is still figuring out who exactly he is, even though it seems like everybody else around him has a pretty solid sense of who he is, because he's already been able to show that aspect of his character in the way that he acts. And he's just growing into that image of himself, or like that better version of himself or the more adult version of himself. And it's kind of a joy to watch him grow up from the very small kid in into the Spider-Verse into a character who is willing to branch out, who's trying to, you know, break out of the neighborhood that he knows and the neighborhood that he grew up in and feels very comfortable in and to try to go out there and make mistakes and mess up and still try to do the right thing, even though it has unintended consequences. And I like that the stakes of this movie, you know, you've got your multiverse. There's kind of a an artificiality, I think, to just about any multiverse story, because, you know, that's a different version of that character. But this movie takes that all of those different experiences and all of those different lives very seriously and shows that there are actual consequences for the actions that you do and you take, even if you may not necessarily intend for them to happen. And I like that because Peter Parker and Miles Morales kind of by extension is the kind of superhero who does mess up a lot, both on the comics page and then in the different iterations of him in the movies. And we get to see him kind of grapple with that. And it's not so much of a a guilt over past actions as a he isn't a perfect person yet, but he's trying to get there, you know? And I I really like that drive towards something as opposed to a running away from something or a running away from past mistakes. Or or even sort of existing as an already, you know, as a paragon of something mm-hmm. and and sort of having challenges being made to that that self image mm-hmm. and you know like captain america he he's captain america he's he's literal he is literally wearing symbols all over himself you know like that's that's kind of who he is and so a lot of the challenges that i feel were have been thrown at him in the movies are more like you are already you and here is something that's going to challenge you and sort of like how how do you meet to that challenge whereas it feels like Spider-Man is always in a process of becoming, mm-hmm. or at least uh, in Across the Spider-Verse, Miles Morales is is still in a process of becoming. He he hasn't become uh, a symbol yet. He's still sort of figuring a lot of stuff out, and that allows him to be much more pliable in the hands of writers and directors who want to sort of um, 
explore the possibilities within his character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think it's fitting that he's a teenager and he's still figuring all of this out and he's still growing up. And I think that's kind of crucial because one of the other themes that I picked up on in this movie is that it's a movie about coming to terms and reckoning with just the general concept of mortality, like growing up and realizing, oh, there's something out there that I'm not going to, like there's an enemy out there that I'm not going to be able to defeat. And I don't know what to do with that. And I find that really refreshing because I think a lot of speculative fiction nowadays, not just superhero movies, but just sci-fi fantasy in general, tends to be about something and about big themes. And more often than not, that about is being about grief and about something that has happened in the past, whether that's a mistake or a death or some other sort of loss. And here, just as Miles Morales is kind of always in that process of becoming, he's facing down the possibility that he's going to end up making a mistake that he's not going to be able to resolve. And that's such a mature thing to have to grapple with. And that's such a difficult theme to have in your film. And I really appreciate that this movie kind of manages to pull that off without making it, you know, the lesson of this movie. This isn't preaching at us about who Miles Morales is. It's still very funny and it's still very much interested in him as a character. But then there's also that theme of the thing that everybody has to grapple with at some point in their lives. That's a really good way of putting it. Miles is still writing his story. Uh, I mean, he in in a line of dialogue, he he says, you know, everybody is trying to tell me what kind of story I'm 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 living in. No, I'm going to do my own thing, mm-hmm. which is on its surface. That sounds like, you know, it's a very inspiring sort of like hero moment for him. But then also, once that choice has been made, the realization comes that if he's still writing a story, that means that he is the one who is going that that trebles the responsibility on his shoulders. And that leaves a lot of room for him to make the wrong choices, take the story to bad places. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting conflict uh, for the film to explore. It's really rich just to see how miles will grow through that it's um it's not a foregone conclusion how his story is going to go mm-hmm. um and i we can maybe presume that he's the hero and the good guys always win but the way it's presented in across the spider verse it doesn't feel like that way and that and that's really nice again in in kind of a blockbuster landscape where so much just feels like a foregone conclusion that everything will tie into everything else and the good guys have to win because you can't make more movies about somebody who dies or mm-hmm. who becomes unlikable. Um, I, I don't know. I, I want to spend more time with these characters and I think that's a credit to the way this this film's been constructed. Yeah, it's really refreshing. We haven't talked about any of the vocal performances at all, so I just want to say it right here. I love Shamik Moore's performance as Miles Morales. I think he's fantastic. He brings a lot of that life and that energy to the character, but there's a lot more gravitas, I think, in this Mm -hmm. iteration of him as well from Into the Spider-Verse. And so it's been really fun to watch him as a performer sort of grow along with these movies, and I really can't wait to see what happens in the next installment either. I mean, true. I I really liked him in this i also liked Haley steinfeld quite a bit as gwen mm-hmm. um she gets the the opening monologue and it's just a well i mean it's a it's a crackerjack uh sequence visually just the editing and the sound are all great um but her vocal performance is also strangely affecting in what kind of amounts to an exposition dump just sort of like bring you know here's the story so far Mm -hmm. um but steinfeld really brings a lot to that and and makes it more than than maybe the sum of its parts or at least like makes it just as um absorbing as all the visual pyrotechnics that are going on around it yeah really well performed really well written and i think we can say that about the entire movie too yeah it's a good one uh listeners if you have any thoughts about this film it is releasing this weekend obviously everywhere so Mm -hmm. it'll be playing at a theater near you and uh we're really interested to see what all of you think about it so um definitely hit us up after you've had a chance to do that you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Tweet us at cbelievepod 
or find us on Letterboxd also at C Believe Pod. Comment on the posts for this movie that we'll put up as well. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Welcome to the conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. This segment is why we always repeat our, our contact info at the end of every first segment, because we want to make sure that we are getting all your thoughts uh, from from all of you out there. Um, sometimes we hear from listeners whose names I run the risk of mispronouncing. So I'm so sorry to this next listener if that's what I'm about to do, but we did get a really nice email that I want to make sure to highlight uh, here. Uh, Ross Yelgerhus or Yelgerheis, I'm not sure. Um, uh, he writes in to say, I love seeing and believing. Thanks so much for your consistently helpful reflections on movies. Christians need to be more thoughtful in their engagement with film, and y'all are such an encouraging space to help build that in the church. So A, Thanks so much, Ross. That's so nice of you to say. And uh, that's just the, we, we love hearing that. Yes. Um, and B, uh, you're absolutely right that uh, with your point about Christians being thoughtful in their engagement with film and uh, trying to find a space to build that within the, the Christian community. So thanks so much for writing in. We really appreciate hearing from you, Ross. Yeah, thank you, Ross. That makes uh, my question that I posed over on Twitter feel a little... Um, I don't know, uh, a little bit silly, but we're here for the silly as well as the serious. <laughs> um, so um, this past Sunday, I said we're going to be covering Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse this upcoming week. And I simply wanted to know who's your favorite Spider-Man. But I put this to a Twitter poll. So the options were Tobey Maguire of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, Andrew Garfield of the Amazing Spider-Man duology, Tom Holland of the MCU Sony crossover movies, or Shamik Moore of the Into and Across the Spider-Verse movies. And uh, we heard back, uh, Tobey Maguire, of course, was the most popular out of all of those, but Tom Holland and Shamik Moore were both pretty far up there. So not a ton of love for Andrew Garfield, <laughs> Andrew unfortunately, Garfield. but um, a lot of people like a lot of different spiders men. And Kyle Matthews actually tweeted back at us and said, I know it's cheating and I don't care. And he just included a picture of Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland all pointing at each other in the <laughs> Spider-Man joke uh, image format, um, which I found very funny. Yeah, I mean... To be fair, I'm going to kind of cheat in a similar fashion myself uh, with this question in that I think that there – I don't know that there's – that we've yet gotten an ideal Spider-Man, sort of the platonic ideal who perfectly embodies both the, the, the character both in and out of the tights. Mm. I really think that Tobey Maguire is the perfect Peter Parker. Mm. I just – he's the – uh, he is the platonic ideal of just this nerdy guy who finds himself with amazing powers. I love the sequences in uh, I love the sequence in the second film where, you know, the raindrops keep falling on my head. Yes. Uh, sequence is great. I also even though Spider-Man 3 isn't very good, I love the sequence where he's, you know, where evil Peter is just strutting down the street and shooting <laughs> finger guns at all the ladies. Oh, no. Because it is a nerd's idea of what cool is. And I just, I love the, the way Raimi uh, conceived that sequence. And I love the way that McGuire plays it. Mm. Best Spider-Man though. I might have to give it to Andrew Garfield. I think he gets the quippy kind of fun Spidey mm -hmm. down pat. And it's a shame that the movies he was in wasn't, weren't better, yeah. but uh, I, I like his take on on the superhero part, the the heroing part of the of the character. I guess. Yeah, I think in terms of live action Spiders Men, uh, we are on the same page. I do think that Tobey Maguire is perfect Peter Parker. Andrew Garfield is just about perfect as Spider Man as well. Um, I am also going to cheat, and I'm going to go with an option that I did not put in the poll, um, which is the voice acting of Chris Pine as one of the original Spider Men in. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I just, I think he's great. And Chris Pine is fantastic. And uh, I'm the one who put together the poll. So I feel like I can cheat on it too. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it is Chris Pine. We are fans of Chris. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what Chris number he is. He's one oh, of he's the he's number one. He's number one. Chris yes. number one, we'll call him. Uh, if he ever wants to come on the show and indulge our, our fan tendencies, <laughs> uh, of course, I'm sure he's listening to this. 
uh, our email box inbox is open, Chris. <laughs> Call us <laughs> or write us. Uh, but that'll do it. Thanks to everyone for uh, voting on that poll um, and, and letting us know your thoughts. The poll might be closed right now, mm-hmm. but the tweet thread is still open. So if you have any further thoughts about uh, maybe a split decision about the best Peter versus the best Spidey, or whether you think one actor embodies the best of all worlds, let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. And now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other co-host has not seen yet. We watch it, and then we discuss it here. And usually there's some sort of a connection between these two movies. Kevin, you did say that there was a galaxy-brained connection at the end of last week's episode between Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop, (laughs) which I love being able to say both of those movie titles in the same sentence. So for those who may not necessarily have seen Verhoeven's RoboCop, um, it's set in a dystopic but no less 1980s version of Detroit in which... Cops are essentially at war with criminals. Feels like, you know, a, a cops and robbers, people chasing each other up and down the streets, except much more serious and much more like a war zone. The Detroit Police Department is kitted out with the help of Omnicorp, which is a mega corporation who essentially owns everything in Detroit and has very big plans for what they want to do with the rest of it. And when one of the police officers, Alex Murphy, is mortally wounded while he's on the job, Omnicorp seizes the opportunity to turn him into the living test of their latest creation, RoboCop. Once Murphy is released on the streets with his memory wiped as a machine for justice, um, those vestiges of his humanity start to come back in interesting and potentially explosive ways. So, Kevin, there's kind of a theme of a character who's wearing a mask. Murphy doesn't really have much of his face visible throughout the rest of this movie um, after he is transformed into RoboCop. There is a theme of fighting crime. I'm not so sure what the other connections are, though, so you'll have to tell me what they Uh, are. I mean, you kind of stole my thunder there. That's basically... like (laughs) The the thing I like about... RoboCop is he's basically a superhero. Mm. Um, he he um, has incredible abilities to fight crime, or at least the version of fighting crime that this uh, world presents us with. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, is definitely presented as sort of like he's the best to ever do it. Um, he's uh, also got a little bit of a connection there with you know spider versus plot thread about this high-tech interdimensional police force there is of course robocop himself is the high-tech police in in this film you know you could also argue that there's a lot of uh playing with media Mm. in Mm -hmm. um both spider verse and robocop the way robocop uses uh media like uh, television shows and newscasts to act as world building and the way that Spider-Verse also makes use of the audience's knowledge of previous media properties and current media properties as both jokes and ways to build uh, build out its universe. Hmm. So those are the Galaxy Brain connections I have. I don't know that I might have been overselling them a little bit, but I think RoboCop makes maybe a better pairing than you'd think at first glance. Yeah, no, I really appreciated the pairing. And I also really appreciated this movie. I'm kind of bummed that I hadn't seen it before. But now we get to talk about it, which is, you know, a good part of the watch list segment here. Um, This feels like a movie that was made in a lab for me. Um, In terms, (laughs) I thought you would like it. I really, really dug it. Um, I, it's funny because I've seen a couple of other Verhoeven movies. I've I have seen Total Recall and I have seen Starship Troopers, and both of them kind of bounced off me a little bit. And I'm not sure if it was the tone or the way that the satire was presented, because all three of these movies, Robocop, Total Recall, and Starship Troopers especially, are all very satirical about a, a vision of the United States as Verhoeven sees it. And for whatever reason, RoboCop just really, really worked for me. And I think it was one of those interstitial commercials that we get right at the beginning of the movie in which a surgeon directly addresses Mm -hmm. the camera and says, you know, 
If you, if you need to have your body fixed, we can do that for you. And you get to pick your own heart. And then he just holds out an artificial heart straight at the camera. And I saw that moment and I knew that I was in very good hands. And also I laughed really hard while I was at it. I wasn't expecting to laugh as much as I did with this movie. Yeah, I like that that commercial because it is sort of, you know, it, it, it does such a great job of suggesting the kinds of technology that are available in this dystopia. I also really like how, you know, it is sort of like this this very standard sort of pharmaceutical message. Like, we we make these products to, to make you well. We do it because we care. Also, check with your insurer to see if you can actually pay for this. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it's that's such a uh, acutely observed moment of just how American healthcare works. Mm-hmm. Just amazing inventions, best healthcare in the world if you can pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I like that. I just I love how it begins with this newscast um, where the the anchors uh, deliver the same you know news about a uh, an apartheid society trying to defend itself with a neutron bomb mm-hmm. uh, with the same smile that they they deliver news about you know a, a local uh, a local company you know like it's all it, it the the artifice and the way that news acts as both information and entertainment is again very acutely observed and then we finally actually get to the to the meat of the movie which is you know obviously all about like law enforcement violence the ways that this this dystopia is corporatized within an inch of its life and how like that more than the crime is is almost more disturbing the way the omnicorp just basically controls everything at one point the the evil uh executive character is asked you know i'll need asked if he has any military grade weaponry he says we basically are the military which is and he says it so casually like yeah of course and i just i really like how verhoven is able to take all these elements build them into a coherent world and yet also make a really entertaining action movie out of it. But the way that he marries those two, it you enjoy the action, but you also kind of wonder, you know, is this part of the debased media landscape that I've been laughing at mm-hmm. with those, you know, with those commercials that we saw at the beginning of the film? I just, I think it's a perfect tightrope that the movie walks. Yeah, absolutely. Um I felt a little bit implicated in how much I was enjoying this movie. And at the same time, I was enjoying it so much that I almost didn't care. And that felt very uncomfortable. And maybe that's part of the reason why a movie like Starship Troopers didn't work for me was because I could feel the edge of that discomfort a little bit, almost more acutely in a way where I felt like I was being set up almost for a gotcha moment. And I don't think that Verhoeven is doing that with RoboCop necessarily, I think that he is pointing out um, a problem with American society and a problem with American individualism and also a problem with the way that we allow ourselves to become desensitized to violence in all of its forms, not just the -the over-the-top shootout violence that we see on the streets of old-slash-new Detroit which is very over the top. I lost count of the number of blood squibs that I saw on screen. And those felt both very serious and also very funny. But like you'd mentioned, there's also the violence of Omnicorp owning everything and squeezing it for profit. I think there's a repeated line throughout the movie in which Someone says, um, we find profit in like the most unlikely places. Like, we're business able to- is where you make it, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a moment in which one character, one of the criminals explicitly says, you know, there's, there's no crime quite like free enterprise. I, lo- I love that one. Too. It's so great. It's just tossed off and never really remarked on again. And it kind of feels like the whole point of the movie, um, where, Verhoeven is showing us all of these violent acts on screen and the law enforcement attempts to control it with the help of equipment and the funding of a corporation that's kind of making all of this violence possible in the first place. And that corporation 
doesn't really care because for the most part, they don't need to have the actual blood on their hands. They can just sort of bulldoze everything off to the side and try to rebuild their new version of Detroit over the bones of old Detroit. And they don't really need to think about the consequences of everything that they need to do in order to get to that point because they're up in a high tower somewhere where they don't have to see any of it until they do, which is also a very funny scene in which uh, a police drone, like a stop motion police drone kind of comes into the boardroom and is put to the test and fails that test horribly and an executive dies as a result of it. Well, he doesn't just die. And this is, I think, the the part of the movie that really kind of lets you know what you're in for. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I feel like calling it a drone almost, like when I think of a drone, I think of like those little remote control thingies that you, you know, can buy it, you you, you can buy now and just sort of like fly around, take pictures of things. Mm -hmm. This, this drone is, is like a, a tank. It's like one of the AT, AT walkers from Star Wars. You know, it's Mm -hmm. this enormous thing. It's got Gatling guns for arms. It's, it it speaks in this this very deep intentionally threatening voice and they sort of test it out in this uh in this executive board meeting uh with one of the uh, executives as a guinea pig he's supposed to like hold a gun in a threatening manner um to you know s- set off this drone mm-hmm. and then you know throw it down you know everything will be okay again but there's a bug in the drone's program and he just obliterates this guy like he and Verhoeven um really leans hard into the violence in that scene like it's it is gratuitous and Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the point is just this guy is just totally reduced to just a puddle of of blood and sinew Mm -hmm. like in in the middle of this board meeting and everybody's sort of like that's horrible oh gosh what this is a this is a boondoggle this we're gonna lose so much money ignoring the fact that there was this guy who just died in the most horrific brutal way possible and i think that's verhoeven kind of making a point without sort of hitting the audience over the head with it like he 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 kind of lets the shock value speak for itself Mm -hmm. and i think that that kind of extends to the rest of the film as well in a lesser film would kind of like really try to stack the deck, maybe like make the the criminal characters be a little bit more sympathetic and make Omnicorp more cartoonishly evil or or more involved in the actual creation of crime. But no, the criminals are monsters too. And mm-hmm. I think Verhoeven uses that to really make the audience question, well, who am I rooting for in this situation? And and really interrogate our impulses. Like what what is justice even look like in a society that's this irrevocably broken? Mm-hmm. And the fact that the action is so quote unquote fun, I think is part and parcel of that entire approach. Yeah. Um, I mean, I felt like I was rooting mostly for the vestiges of, of officer Alex Murphy played by Peter Weller um, throughout the course of the runtime. And at the same time, I felt a little bit weird about it too, just because the movie kind of puts him up on that pedestal. Like we were just talking about DC superheroes that are kind of made out to be some sort of an ideal that is already fully formed. And yet this is a guy who doesn't even really have much of an identity to speak of once Omnicorp is done with him. He's just unlucky enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Also killed quite horribly by criminals and then resurrected even more horribly by Omnicorp as their product and he is explicitly called their product by one of the executives to his face later on in the movie and he is what this corporation has made him out to be which is you know a killer and a machine and somebody who is there to enforce the law but only enforce the law in a way that is convenient for the people who made him and empowered him in order to be able to do that and that feels really gross. And it also feels like just such a terrible plight for this character who never really had any say in it in the first place. So I guess I'm rooting for Alex Murphy. I don't know that I'm actually rooting for RoboCop necessarily. And that feels like that might be the right balance, but I still feel uneasy about it. Well, he's basic. It's basically a Frankenstein story, right? Like he, he, he dies and, and is re reanimated as, uh, as a monster. Like he, he is, he is more machine than man, mm-hmm. um, and he 
the way that Weller plays him, like the, the physical performance from Weller, I think is incredible. Just the way mm-hmm. he, he moves after turning into Robocop, he, he feels like a machine. He, you get that sense from him. And the important thing to remember about, about Frankenstein is regardless of how sympathetic Frankenstein's monster might be, he's still a monster. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of key to Robocop as well as, we do root for Murphy. We feel sorry for him. It's it's a raw deal that he gets. Um, but also the ends to which he's being put are monstrous. Like he he is he is something to be feared, not some not somebody to to cheer on with a little pennant and, and pom poms. Like he is cold metal. Um he he dispatches villains and then spins his gun like a like an old western cow like an old west cowboy mm-hmm. and that kind of swagger in the act of dispatching pretty brutal uh police tactics like you understand why he might like you your your allegiances are torn i guess you understand why such violent tactics might be called for at least according to his programming mm-hmm. but also it's it's monstrous. It, there's not really a, a, any way to reconcile them. And, and the way that the viewer is kind of invited to try to reconcile it because it is an action movie and he is our hero, that I think is a really productive tension. I really like the read of Murphy as Frankenstein's monster. I hadn't really fully considered that. Um I think I was mostly just thinking about him as this cyborg character who has literally had all of his humanity stripped away and he's sort of trying to claw for the rest of that back, which is also a very Frankenstein thing to do. Like the monster is also attempting to hold on to what little humanity that he can hold on to. And he abandons all of that after the rest of humanity rejects him. I think the scary thing about Murphy as RoboCop is how much he's embraced by everybody else around him, especially after, you know, the very cold and inhuman way that he goes about dispatching criminals. Like there's, you know, the music that plays underneath as he's driving around old Detroit and um, the way that the movie kind of frames him as being a little bit larger than life. Um, And it's interesting because all of the law enforcement officers in this film are all wearing body armor that kind of gives them pecs and abs, and they kind of look like Greek warriors in a way, but Murphy is that turned up to 11, essentially. And yet there's still this this level of pathos, I think, in him. And I think it's a very smart move on the movie's part, probably in the script, also in Verhoeven's direction, where we don't really get to meet Murphy as he was as a human being before he's turned into RoboCop. Like we see him on the job for about 10 minutes and then he's killed and then he's brought back. And we sort of rediscover who he had been in the same time that he does as he's walking around his old house. And I love this sequence because you get him kind of trying to reintegrate his old memories that are still buried down there somewhere that have been repressed along with his identity as someone who literally just is a face attached to a robot body. And I love that he's very conscious of this thing that he's lost, but he's never really able to get it back. I think he's past the point of no return. And I don't think he chose that, but he's been pushed there. And there isn't really much else that he can do other than continue to embrace like what little humanity he might still have left and then also follow those directives that he has too yeah i want to get your your read on on the very very ending of the film so the i mean number one that that final confrontation between uh robocop and the the evil executive you know like we we find out earlier that uh, the executive is programmed a failsafe into RoboCop's uh, memory where RoboCop can't harm him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or at least he can't harm anybody involved with the company. And so the the big punchline to that moment is the CEO tells the e- evil executive he's fired mm-hmm. and that cuts the failsafe and RoboCop can, you know, cap him. But mm-hmm. the, um, the, the very last line, though, is the CEO having, you know, 
uh, gotten rid of the the really evil executive. I guess they're all kind of evil, but oh, the, yeah. <laughs> the super, e- the cartoonishly evil executive, you know, says that was some good shooting. Uh, uh, what what's your name, officer? And uh, Robocop turns in and he says Murphy, and he smiles, and he smiles, and and then you know cuts the credits, mm-hmm. which suggests that he did recover some sort of personhood but i'm curious to get your read on that because it feels like the the script is sort of like that would be in a in a conventional script like that would be sort of like the oh yeah go go murphy like he's back i feel like it's a much more mixed moment in the way verhoven in the context of verhoven's direction but i want to get your your thoughts on that too i laughed really hard and then i (laughs) immediately felt really bad about it um it feels like the capper on the tragedy that is Murphy because he's a character who has never really fully belonged in any of the positions that he's been in. And this feels like him finally being able to integrate the vestiges of his humanity with his robotic, like cyborg nature. So when he first joins the part of the force that he's in, when we first meet him, he's brand new to that beat. He's brand new to that job. He's just met his partner. He's out of place. And he's out of place when he stumbles in on the criminals who ultimately end his life. And then he's out of place as a robotic version of the police officers that he's essentially designed to replace. And then he's even more out of place once he starts realizing like, oh, wait, I was a human before I was this and I can't remember it. But I know somewhere deep down that there is a part of me that used to be something other than this and was probably very good at it and can never really be again. That's a very tragic position for him to be put into. Kind of gets back at that Frankenstein version of his identity. And I think that that smile at the end of the movie is the most chilling thing because for whatever reason, Murphy has been able to accept the fact that he has been programmed to do one job and one job only. It was the thing that he was trained to be as a human being, but now he's been turned into a version that doesn't really need as many resources or even sleep or personal time in order to be able to do it. He's kind of synthesized himself into being, you know, the perfect arm of capitalistic progress. (laughs) And He's lost almost all of his humanity and his identity in that process, but he's held on to just enough of it that he's self-aware and he's aware of his place in it. And he's finally, I guess, content in that. And that's the scariest thing for Mm. me is that he's almost content with it. And that's where the movie leaves us. Um, I know that there are sequels to this movie and I don't think I want to see them because I think that that's kind of the perfect ending for such a sour film. And I really savored watching it, but also, woof, that's... That's rough. I mean, uh, I, I like your your observation about Murphy being a perpetual outsider, uh, regardless of what state he's in. Um, I, that hadn't occurred to me before, and it seems like the the he finally is accepted. He finally finds his place when he when he uh, and, and gives himself a name when the the CEO of Omnicorp praises him, and and he's just you know dispatched and violently dispatched another another evildoer and all is right in the world again it's verhoven kind of using the the grammar of you know mainstream american action movies there's a little bit of western in there as well the Mm -hmm. the guy who who rides into town and you know his gun is going to put all to right and I, i i don't know i think it's it's just so i think why i keep coming back to this movie is that it it's so good at writing that line where it is the perfect exemplar of a particular kind of action movie. But and so you can you can enjoy it on that level, just as you would enjoy any action movie, but it also doesn't kind of let you just it doesn't just pass right through you like like mm-hmm. other kind of entertainment might. There's a lot more to chew on there if you are so inclined to. And I know I, I really like that yeah. about it. Me too. I'm glad I watched it. Well, uh, listeners, that is our review of RoboCop. And I, I'm 
I'm going to say that again, just because it's a fun word to say. RoboCop <laughs> is uh, available to to rent on demand from uh, various streamers. So if you haven't had a chance to see it and are in the mood for uh, a movie that delivers the 80s action goods and also a little bit of thoughtfulness in there as well, it's worth checking out if you haven't already. If you have checked it out or plan on it, let us know your thoughts by emailing us, tweeting us, or hitting us up on Letterboxd. We're always interested to hear from you. Next week, we're going to quiet down a little bit, Sarah. We're going to be a little bit less in your face. We are staying in the 1980s, though. Just a different universe. Okay, We're we're a universe away. For our watch list pick, we are going to be discussing uh, James Ivory's A Room with a View, starring a very young Helena Bonham Carter and also a very young Daniel Day-Lewis. And if that isn't enough to sell you on a movie, then I don't know what is. I'm looking forward to to this immensely. We are going to be pairing that with uh, the foreign film Past Lives. Um, so that's something, that's a pairing I'm looking forward to a lot. I'm looking forward to both of them individually, but should be a good episode for sure. Yeah. More romance movies, I think, on yeah. Seeing and Believing, at least for next week. Yeah, there, there will be less uh, violence, or at least less physical violence, maybe some emotional violence. We'll see mm-hmm. uh, next week on the show. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Seeing and Believing is, of course, brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.